0: Welcome to the Let's Scare My Girlfriend
1: to Death podcast. I'm your co-host, Josh. And I'm your co-host, the girlfriend, Cindy. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Let's Scare My Girlfriend to Death. The episodes uh, this week, this month, are about Stephen King.
0: This is a big one.
1: This is a huge one. Not
0: just Stephen King, but like in general. Oh, this
1: episode? So this is the podcast where a very loving and dear boyfriend tries to viciously murder via fright me through ridiculous movies.
0: You uh, you shattered that introduction. Thank
1: you. <laughs> That's been my thing lately. I think I'm becoming, I'm slowly becoming it, Shatner. Just
0: Ooh. put spaces where spaces yeah. aren't needed. You don't know uh, where they're not needed. <laughs> yeah. When I first conceived of this podcast and pitched it to you and we were talking about doing it. In jest, I might add. I had, I had a list of movies in my head that were like big movies. Like okay. the cornerstones of horror that people always talk about when they talk about like what are the most important horror films? What are people's favorite horror? This is a big one. Well,
1: and, yeah. I have a bit of a confession is that I've never seen this movie and that culturally The Shining is, which is what we're doing this week, by the way, uh, The Shining is such an important movie, yeah. culturally. I've never seen it. Um, I faked my way through a lot of it. Like I know enough to like laugh at The Simpsons. What and
0: was, What was the last movie we saw that you faked your way through? Was, um, it, was it Misery? I think. It was one we watched where you're like, I faked my way through this.
1: It might have been. Was it one of the hollow... Uh, mm, I don't know. I
0: doubt. I've I done a lot. we talked about The Crow a lot. When we talked <laughs> about you faking it. Because you're like, I saw The Crow and then I didn't see this. Yep.
1: But... Oh, Donnie Darko. Yeah, that was
0: it. Yeah, yeah. So this is a fucking This is another, This is
1: another Donnie Darko for me.
0: Uh, and the thing about this movie is, unlike, say, Lady in White, which is a huge struggle to find enough background and whatnot to really fill out a whole episode, because that movie's really good, Mm -hmm. this is going to be the opposite, where there is literally so much that could be talked about with this movie. What year did this movie come out? The Shining was released June 13th of 1980. Okay, so I was like six months old. Yeah, it is rated R. It's as old as I am. And it is... Are you ready for this, Cindy? Yeah.
1: Two hours
0: and 26 minutes long. I
1: did know that this was going to be a long week.
0: <laughs> I mean, we've put it off quite a bit. We've done a lot of short movies. It's time for it's a long one. It's time for me to pay the pauper, I suppose. So, you want to talk about 1980? Yes. Technically, it was the first year of life. It's the your life, Right? You were born in, like, the end of 79. Yeah.
1: The last few days. The
0: last days of 79. Mm-hmm. That could be the title of your autobiography. The Last Days of of 79. So 1980, here's a couple... Reaganomics. Yeah, fuck Reagan. I'm going to talk about Reagan a lot towards the end of this, but I hate him. So 1980, the Steelers win their fourth Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. But what? The Rubik's Cube debuted in 1980. Okay. The Winter Olympics were in Lake Placid.
1: Where the crocodile is. Yes.
0: Okay. Fuck yeah, that movie. Uh, that's also the Olympics where the U.S. beat the Soviet Union with the Miracle and Ice team that they made a USA, movie pro about. USA! Yeah, that's a thing, and I'll, I enjoyed that movie. Robert Mugabe is elected Prime Minister of Zimbabwe, and it didn't backfire at all. <laughs> and he left after his, like, four or eight years were up. Yeah. Actually, he didn't. He was a fucking Correct. monster who only he was died deposed. a couple years ago.
1: Yeah, he was deposed about five years ago. <laughs> uh...
0: That was also the year that the U.S. uh, boycotted the Summer Olympics because they were held in the Soviet Union. Okay. Archbishop Oscar Romero was gunned down while uh, celebrating Mass in San Salvador. That was the year that, especially, El Salvador was a giant fucking mess that we created. Iron Maiden released their first and self-titled album. Iron Maiden. Yep. Are you aware of the Pennsylvania lottery scandal? Was that a thing that you know about? Uh... Well, I know of a few, but... It was when they rigged the lottery and won it. Like, no. there's seven people, including someone that worked at the lottery, like, rigged it. Ooh, no, so I they didn't. So they would know the numbers and then won it and split the money up and then got caught. Uh, that was a thing.
1: No, I did not. Yeah, that was a
0: thing. Um, but it
1: doesn't surprise me. Uh, Philadelphia, for a long time, was like the Florida of, like, the 80s. A lot of weird shit happened in Philadelphia.
0: Mm, I feel like Miami is the America of the 80s. (laughs) Right? Like, when I think of the 1980s, someone's like, name the first city that pops in your mind when you think of the 1980s. I'm like, Miami. Miami Vice. That kind of, like, look, you mean? The the Mariel Boatlift. The whole Cuban uh, refugee thing. Um, Scarface. Like, the neon lights. Like, the cocaine, like, party time. Alright, I get you. Miami basically was... Oh, that was good about the 80s. <clears throat> or bad, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> okay, so smallpox is designated eradicated by the World Health Organization. Give it time. Woo-woo. The Empire Strikes Back was released. CNN launches. ACDC released their Back in Black album. Okay. This is for you, Cindy. For me. The Phillies won the World Series that Yay. year. I think it was the Lakers won... The NBA championships that year, too. It was their first year with Magic Johnson. Oh, wow. He won it as a rookie. Reagan's elected. Yeah. Boo. boo. Okay. Boo. And Dallas aired its Who Shot JR episode. Ooh. That
1: was huge. I know that's in a lot of those little, like, on the year you were born.
0: Right. is the... A uh, cliffhanger for that happened. Who was born that year? Who is technically
1: me, Cindy of the podcast?
0: You were born in '79. Dang it! The final days of '79. So who is younger 80, than sorry. you yet older than me? So Lynn Manuel Miranda, mm-hmm. Jason Siegel. Chris Pine, Macaulay Culkin, Ryan Gosling, and Jake Gyllenhaal. Correct. It's a very handsome year for babies mm-hmm. being born. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment, like, uh, for me, somehow. People that died that year. Alfred Hitchcock, Mario Bava, Peter Sellers, Bon Scott of ACDC, Steve McQueen, Mae West, and John Lennon. It was a shitty year for people dying. Yes. Aren't they all, though? And the new words of 1980, the year this film came out, are... Burr. 401k, voicemail, and comb-over. <laughs> oh, and also, I forgot, yuppie. <laughs> all things, telling. all yuppie. things
1: Donald Trump. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's talk about this movie, though. Uh, I so, like I, everybody knows that, and even even myself, Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, and then there's like a little boy and twin girls, and that's it. Oh, and they, wait, wait, wait. There's a... There's an old black man in this movie too, right?
0: <laughs> okay, yeah. First of all, we have to talk How about I doing? who is the focal point of this movie. I think this is the, in my mind, the only Stephen King adaptation that matters. That Stephen King isn't the marquee name one. You think? Oh, because it's Stanley Kubrick. It's Stanley Kubrick. Okay. And and for better or for worse. This is not quite a Stephen King movie. This is definitely a Stanley Kubrick movie. Stanley Kubrick, you know him. If you don't, he is American-born and lived in England. I have
1: mixed feelings on him because I know what he did to like Shelley Duvall, and he was part of what kind of broke her.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: however, I also know that he was very careful about the children in this production not being scared and not knowing yeah. they were in a horror movie, and there's something about that. So well, I do have, he's a bit of a mixed bag in my, if I'm going to, you know, I, I take down it. the patriarchy, is he part
0: of it? And I get the whole thing about him being like this monster on set at times and, you know, he, everything kind of bent to his will. I will say, I'll just give him credit for this. He was a massive asshole to actors. Okay. But all actors, right? It wasn't yeah. like he singled out the women and was especially horrible to them. He was pretty awful to everyone. <laughs>
1: Uh, I mean, he
0: was pretty good with the kids. Okay, yeah. But the adults that signed up, he was basically like, you know how I work. If you want to make this movie, we'll make this movie. But you will work the way I work. I'm not going to work the way you work. And it broke a lot of people. Well, just look at it this way. I want you to think about Stanley Kubrick movies. And with the exception of Peter Sellers, because he let Peter Sellers basically improvise and it was the only person he let ever do that, no one ever worked with Kubrick again. Like it was mostly a one. How many of that times did Sellers
1: work with him again?
0: Twice. But in Doctor Strange Love he played like three parts. Oh. So but again, Sellers was the only actor that Kubrick ever let improvise. Like just invent shit on the spot. Like no one else was allowed to do that.
1: Okay, so break down the cast, uh who did I get right and wrong?
0: Well, hold on a second, we're not quite there yet, so Directed by Stanley Kubrick, two thousand one, Clockwork Orange, Doctor Strangelove. It's written by Kubrick and Diane Johnson, who's a novelist, based on King's book. King wrote a screenplay, and Kubrick said, "Dumb good." <laughs> he wanted to do it himself. He's like,
1: uh, and that would, is...
0: that would probably be the last time
1: that Stephen King would do that,
0: huh? Uh, well, no, no, he all the way to like the eighty, that mid eighties, because I think it was Silver Bullet. He wrote the script for Silver Bullet. Mm -hmm. And Dina De Laurentiis was like, now we're good. We're going to hire someone else to do it. I don't know what it was in the 80s with people being like, we want to make a movie of your book, but we don't want you contributing. We don't want your voice. It's crazy. Yeah. uh, And we'll talk after we watch the movie about King and Kubrick and how they did not get along. Okay. So this movie stars, like you said, Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance. You know from Chinatown, from One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, from The Last Detail, from directing a few really good movies that no one ever talks about. Also, Shelley Duvall right. as Wendy Torrance, who was born to play Olive Oil and Popeye. Correct. Which she did. Yep. Uh, I, I totally d- agree. I actually weirdly know her more as um, an Altman person. Like, she was in a lot of Robert Altman movies. Okay. So yeah. that's what I think of her when I think of her. I don't think of necessarily her from this movie. So she's like, Robert are you Altman in the, are you in a small? Like, that's a small camp. He did Three Women. He did Nashville. And he is the exact opposite of mm-hmm. Kubrick in a lot of ways. Like, he was very big on, like, just make it up. Do whatever you want to do. Like, oh, wow. So, we, got, we got you. Like, fuck it. If you fail, we'll just do it again. If you don't, we won't do it again. Like, Robert Altman was... So that's why... Very freewheeling. They didn't work. It didn't work out well. And actually, there's a... So when Altman made, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the movie, it'll come to me and I'll point it out then, but he shot a movie and uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, actually. And there's a scene where Warren Beatty lights a cigar and the cigar lights his face up in the dark. Yeah. And Cooper called him and was like, that was an incredible shot. How how did you do it? Like, what kind of lights did you use? Like, you know, I I started asking all these technical questions and Altman was like, that was an accident. And Kubrick's like, what? And he's like, yep, didn't mean to do it, and it happened. And we thought, hey, it looked great. Let's just use it. And Kubrick was like, all right, never mind. Different
1: scene alpha personality a bravo, I guess.
0: Like, someone who's the super charismatic and laid back and just wanted every set to be, like, a big family gathering versus a guy who was, like, a probably autistic <laughs> and you're going to do this my way or I will you know this fucking going break you. And? So, polar opposites. Danny Lloyd plays Danny Torrance, their, their child. How old is he in this? He's like, I think six or seven. Okay. But he actually never acted again. Except, well, he acted one more time after this. We'll talk about that next week. Okay. But oh, okay. He became a science teacher and then a biology professor.
1: Aw, that's nice.
0: Yeah. He was very keen on like, Getting out of the Hollywood brat race? It wasn't even that. They brought him in and he auditioned and he got it. And he enjoyed, I saw an interview of him as a kid. And he talked about how he enjoyed all the toys and stuff he was able to buy. Yeah. But it, he didn't really care. Like it okay. was like. Yeah, the girl from Curly Sue is like that. It wasn't a thing where he was like, oh, I'm a serious actor. I want to do this forever. It was just, oh, they paid me money to do this. I'm going to buy toys with it. And you now I'm going to go back to school. Which is nice. And then the black guy that you're referring to is Scatman Crothers.
1: Okay. That's a very important name.
0: (laughs) Who, in addition to being an actor, was a songwriter, a composer, a singer, a comedian, and a guitarist. He plays Dick Halloran, who is a big, I will say big, but an important character in King Lore. uh, Because he ties into the It book as well, in a way. They all tie together. Mike and... Hanlon's uncle or great uncle or something like that. But oh, whatever. That's lost on me. Yeah, as an actor, Scatman Crothers was in One of the Cuckoo's Nest. He's in the Twilight Zone movie, remember? Mm-hmm. The uh, Spielberg episode where he makes yes. everyone young again. And he was the voice of the Transformer Jazz on Transformers. <laughs> so he's, he's iconic. I, I know his voice as a Transformer from my childhood. <laughs> yeah yeah all right uh, so there you go that's the cast now i'm gonna throw some trivia at your face throw it are you ready for this yeah so nicholson and duvall both felt that the success of the film was unfairly given to kubrick Not enough credit yeah, what about the actors to the cast and crew and king that's uh, both actors said that these were the hardest roles of their careers and nicholson considers duvall's performance the most difficult role he's ever seen an actress take on well, Period. and like I, like I
1: mentioned earlier, it did break her. Yep.
0: Yeah. She uh, she suffered from nervous exhaustion through filming, and actually her hair began to fall out.
1: Gosh, yeah. I mean, the, the stories of what happened on set and the making her cry and break down and are legendary.
0: And the, the script that we talked about, the one that he wrote without King, there were actually so many changes to the script during the shooting that Nicholson said that he just gave up even reading it or even trying to memorize anything. They'd just give him a script every day with like massive changes. And he'd be like, Cool. And just not read it. <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> so what <when laughs> like, filmed It will be different by tomorrow. Oh, okay, I see. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, actually whatever those circumstances. And Jellica Houston, who was living with Nicholson, they were in a long term relationship at the time. They were she was staying with him in the hotel, and she said that Every day when he would get home from shooting to the hotel, he would just walk through the door of the hotel room and then collapse immediately on the bed and fall asleep.
1: Um, (laughs) Oh. I I know, yeah. Like I said, it's very culturally, these things are are pretty well known about how things were shot and how it kind of went down, just because that's part of Kubrick's lore, right?
0: Yeah. A couple more things before we actually get into shooting. I don't want to... There's a lot to talk about but most of it's going to be in the back half Okay. but I just want to leave you with these two little tidbits so Kubrick screened one of his favorite films of all time for the cast and crew before they uh, started making this which was Eraserhead that's a David Lynch movie he actually called David Lynch and asked him several questions about the making of Eraserhead and was apparently a David Lynch fan did David Lynch reveal any secrets to him you think I mean that's the thing I will say about Kubrick is because of his stature, he would just cold call people and ask well, them questions Well, yeah, like you mentioned about, Robert Altman earlier. Yeah. Um, Hi, I'm famous. Like, hey, I'm Stanley Kubrick. And everyone would be like, holy shit. And he'd be like, how did you do this thing? Because it's amazing. And they were like, uh... uh and... Lastly... And lastly... This movie was scheduled to be shot over 17 weeks. And how long did it end up taking? 51 weeks. Oh, that's almost a whole fucking year. One week shot of a year. Yep. Oh, damn. Yep.
1: Well, okay then.
0: Yeah. Uh, This movie went so over schedule that I think it was Raiders of the Lost Ark and there was something else that was supposed to shoot maybe Blade Runner in Elstree Studios and it had to be pushed back. Because this movie just kept going. Yeah, they basically were like, we're not going to tell Kubrick no, Mm -hmm. so you guys have to wait to make your shit. Alright. So just queue up and when he's done. Because he had every available space at Elstree Studios for this movie. So they are totally every, focused on that. Every single space. Every single sound studio was designated for The Shining.
1: Okay. So do you have a poster for me? Oh, I do. Uh, now, again, I mean I kind of it's just a yellow, a masterpiece of modern horror. Yellow, the shining, and a scary face in the tea. Um, uh, I know that it's about like a haunted hotel, and I know that it's about a man, like people going stir crazy, like with cabin fever. And that's all I know.
0: Cool.
1: Is that what the movie's about? We'll find out all right well we're gonna watch this it's probably i mean it's available everywhere but do we have a blu-ray or anything like that
0: so um i have a stanley kubrick set but it's at my house so i was gonna have to rent it great but it's probably streaming somewhere for free it's movie's like iconic you most people have probably able seen it, it as well you probably already own it
1: all right well here we go join us won't you Find the doors
0: I don't suppose they uh, told you anything
1: in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970. I hired a man named Charles Grady, is the winter caretaker. So from what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, killed his family with an I... Well... You can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not going to happen with me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Mom, do you really want to go and live in that hotel for the winter? Sure I do. It'll be lots of fun. The only thing that can get a bit trying up here during the winter is uh, the tremendous sense of isolation. Is there something bad here?
1: I fear you will have to deal with this matter in the harshest possible way. I well, dude that uh, I killed you with Danny. You did this to didn't you? I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains. Josh has a ton of notes for this one, guys. Gosh,
0: damn, there's... Welcome back.
1: So we watched this two-and-a-half-hour movie in about three-and-a-half hours. Uh, We chose to watch it with the almost 15-year-old, and there were lots of stops and starts.
0: Yeah, apparently... That's a teenager for you. He pee a lot, and his pee breaks are really long.
1: So this movie uh, was a good scare. It definitely scared me. Not really the content... So much as the way things were shot. There was one really good jump scare. You know, like those type of things. But this definitely has an overall feel. Like, oh, this is what a scary movie is supposed to feel like. I think it did a good job in that.
0: It's definitely eerie.
1: I will recap the plot by saying... (laughs) So we're going to start real superficial and kind of on the surface level. And then we'll go down a little deeper. So the plot is basically a husband and wife with their young son... ...are tasked to keep a giant hotel winterized through the off-season, and uh, the father succumbs to cabin fever. There you go. What have you
0: got? Okay, so here is... Like, I know I've left
1: a lot out, but essentially that's the main
0: line. Here is the... Uh, summary from imdb one of the imdb summaries the one i think is not the most concise but the one that covers the most ground in the smallest amount of time which is a novelist jack torrance takes a job as a winter caretaker of the isolated old huge beautiful overlook hotel he brings his wife wendy and his son danny it happens that danny has a mysterious power known as the shining Danny meets Halloran, the cook, in their first day after arriving at the Overlook. Who warns them about the hotel in the sinister room two thirty seven. Which that's actually not true. Not true. He, Danny's the one that mentions right. two thirty seven to Halloran, and Halloran's like, "Stay out of it." As the days go by, Danny has visions. Meanwhile, Jack starts driving, uh, diving into insanity, turning more and more aggressive. At the point that Danny and Wendy get convinced that Jack might try to do something bad. Everything kind of goes to shit. <laughs> Took a while to convince him of that. I added but... that everything kind of goes to shit. But um, yeah. How I nice also city.
1: wouldn't call Jack a novelist. He's a teacher who wants to be a writer. He hasn't been published, has he? Uh,
0: I don't remember. I, I don't, don't think so. So it's I know not, the difference just between weird. the book and the movie, and we'll talk about this more in a little bit, but I do know the book version of Jack is a playwright who has been published before.
1: Okay. I don't... i mean, it, it's nitpicking at this point. Okay, so as we begin talking about thematic elements, because that's all this movie is—is is just a whole lot of different motifs and symbols and allusions and whatnot. I think there's a few important <laughs> distinctions to make. One, I think that there is the basic storyline of the Stephen King novel. I have not read the Stephen King novel, but
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. But and it's then, been a while. and then there's the other level, which is Stephen King taking that as like a basic like the frame story and then he fills in the details. So there are definitely going to be times that I might have a question or comment on something that is explained in the novel and there's no way I would know.
0: Well, I mean, I will say just that I think it's important to look at what thematically is King and what thematically is Kubrick? Right. So they're, they're, I, have, I... In the framework of King.
1: I have no way to make that distinction. Okay? So... Um, I also, before we get into it, my, uh, a lot of my family listens to this. They'll back me up. Uh, my grandfather was a... Very small, but a, he was a cog in the wheel of NASA that put the Apollo on the moon. And my uncles had a piece of the moon. It was kind of a whole thing. So there's a few things that I kind of, uh, as far as fan theories, roll my eyes at. That being said.
0: <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. Just so everyone knows, we watched, because I'd seen it before, just once. And I was kind of curious to see how it would play with Cindy. So we watched Room 237. Which um, is
1: a movie about fan theories it of is, this movie. And it, it's some very of them quick.
0: Are really insane. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a little out there. I don't think it... This movie was Kubrick's way of saying, like, I faked the moon landing, and here's how I did it. The one I do buy, I think there is a lot of, on Kubrick's part, there's a lot of subliminal imagery, and a lot of, like, he did things like moving things around within the scene during takes, because those all kind of all compile in your brain. Okay. To be like, something's not right. But yeah,
1: there were things and as we were...
0: That makes sense Yeah,
1: as we were watching 237, Room 237, I was very exactly. amazed at how many of the little pieces of strange kind of brick brack throughout the movie that people picked up on and applied it to their theory that I also picked up on. Yeah. And I may have had a totally different take on it.
0: But I think for our purposes, we're not going to go down the road of like, this means that. You know, right there, that's the moon You had there's or, a whole documentary about that. We're just going to kind of talk about this from our perspective. So.
1: I think I also, um, so we've been talking about you know being in grad school and whatnot. My final big capstone paper for this one class is, um, the th- different theories that psychologists and specialists have on how we read, right? Like, wh- what is that? the idea of taking lines on a paper to form a meaning, right? And so I've been totally immersed in that as far as the world of text. And then watching this and watching Room 237 and just kind of listen, it's very interesting to hear like, well, so what is the truth then, right? Is it what the director wanted me to know? Is it what I bring to the table? Is it, you know, because anything that I say and, and kind of taking myself out and thinking about it like that you know, thinking about this objectively, the way that I was looking at, say, my research material, it was it became so fascinating, yeah, oh, yeah. and it really gave credence to what uh, David Lynch says, "Hi, buddy," of like, "Okay, will can <laughs> go into that more." And he's like, "No," and I think that means that he's a big proponent of what we call in in the reading world the reader's response theory, which is the what the reader brings to the table is very important. You can't discount that. Good writers know, okay, here's what my audience will know. You know what I mean? Here are the things I need to teach my audience. Here are the things my audience knows. I don't know Kubrick well enough to know like those things. For my theory on what happened, which we'll get into in a little bit, I focused on what things were happening during when he would have been writing and planning this movie. That he would have wanted to have a say on. Does that make sense? Yeah. Which is why I discount the whole um, subtext of the Apollo Moon mission because it's just it's not it's a, it's almost like a non-conflict. I don't think he would have cared. My grandfather and what, whatever he, part he played in that, he would kind of. My, my grandfather went to the grave with a lot of secrets that he was just like, well, it didn't really matter. Like, who cares what I'm doing 9 to 5 as long as I'm bringing home the paycheck, you know, sort of a thing. So I don't it's think very that... Very old-timey. <laughs> well, but that would have been, like, that would have been, like, Stanley Kubrick's time as well. So I don't think he would have had this long conversation with his wife over, oh, but I'm lying to the public or not. Like, I don't I don't think that would have factored in at all. I think maybe he added some of the Apollo 11 things, whether or not he was included in the remake of the filming. Um, I don't know. But... I don't think that's what he wrote an entire movie about and took one of the most popular re- uh, books of its time and made his own. You know, I think that he chose it because it's popular, because he had something to say. So I think it was about something more important than that.
0: Um, I think that there's a lot of overlapping themes between Kubrick and King. And,
1: and if you're a good, like, a Lynchian, or a, who's another, well, I guess Kubrick as well, you... All those theories are right.
0: Yeah. You know, well, they're all correct. It's mean, basically like when you talk about film criticism, it's basically like in the case of this, like there's a story being told with the book. Right. And there's an interpretation of the book, and then the book is getting reinterpreted into a screenplay. So that's a whole different thing, right? With a whole different potential view and a whole different way of looking at it, and then the book is tra- or then the I'm sorry, the screenplay is then turned into a film. I think. Right? And then the film speaks to an audience and the audience interprets it. So mm-hmm. it's constantly a writing, right. writing. And I think situation. this
1: might be the first movie, I don't know, because of this research paper, this podcast or whatever, that I've really been cognizant of, oh, this director does care what the audience brings. The author, do you know what I mean? The director mm-hmm. does. You know, some people will get this and some won't. And it's still an entertaining story if you don't. But if you do, here are the clues sort of a thing. I thought yeah. that was interesting. Yeah. I think
0: ultimately, though, there's a reason why Kubrick was attracted to the book. Because I think there's certain themes that King wrote in the book that Kubrick was attracted to. I think they both had a different, like, style of getting from A to B to C. Mm-hmm. But but th- doesn't mean th- that there's not a lot of ways. Like, You know, and and in a lot of ways, they're polar opposites. Like, when we talk about, here in a little bit, the original ending of the book versus the ending of the movie, Mm -hmm. they are literally the opposites.
1: I didn't know that they... So,
0: yeah. Until it's 237.
1: Okay, so how do we want to start? Do we want to talk about our theme? Like, what do we take away? Or do we want to do, like, what are the popular ones and then ours? How do we want to get into this? Well, I'm just going to start out. Before we
0: get into that, I just want to say that the... Whole thought for the book, and this is actually, I believe, King's second novel after Carrie, if I'm not mistaken. But the whole theme, the whole idea, came about because he was staying. Um, he was doing this, right? Well, he, he was, was staying. He was spending time at the Stanley Hotel in Colorado, and it was getting ready to close, and he was checking out towards the end of the season. Mm-hmm. And he said he saw a bunch of nuns checking out. And he thought, oh, it's like once they're gone, this place will become godless. <laughs> and what would that look like? And he'd have been toying with an idea of a psychic boy because he'd just basically done a telekinetic girl with Gary. Okay. And then he cents. fused that them follows. together into a novel, hence where they It's idea wild came to from?
1: think that there are resorts that have a season. You know, you'd think if you're in Colorado, you'd have like kayaking and hiking in the summer, skiing in the winter. Yeah. But it gets so bad that it's just, just not, trapped.
0: yeah, it's yeah. not worth it. I mean, there are places that are lower on the mountains that you can enjoy skiing or yeah. that place is, so, especially the the movie depiction is so high up. Well, right? well, yeah, that isolated drive. Let's just talk about the themes of this movie. I'm going to throw some, some ideas out at you and you tell me what you
1: think. Well, why don't we, do you want me to throw mine and you see if, oh, that sounds like anything that someone said before or am I a complete unique idea? Oh, how do you want to do it? Do you want to start or do you want me to start? It's up to you. Mine's kind of a simple theory, and I think mine will be probably a little quicker because I don't, you know, obviously, I don't have the notes you have. <laughs>
0: so, I just like to keep my thoughts organized.
1: But again, this is what I'm bringing to the table, and I think this is more about me than it does Kubrick. I think that this is a movie about a man being driven, about mental illness, and about someone succumbing to their own insanity. And the labyrinth is this idea of the labyrinth of the mind. And at first his wife and son are at the center of his mind. And that's all that he can think about. And that's why he does what he does. And then over time, as he puts himself closer, and then he eventually he gets lost in his own mind, and then that's how he dies, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's this, you know, just little things. Like, can you imagine trying to type with an echo like that? While having a kid in a big wheel just going in circles around you. Like that kind of thing. Like that would drive me absolutely crazy. And he has this really nice life. He has a wife who brings him back breakfast in bed. He sleeps until eleven and it's still not enough. He's still going crazy. He's still so self centered and so you know, so that's that that was kind of my takeaway was that this is somebody who slowly snapped. And then as far as like the Stephen King thing, I thought overall this was a story about the inherent evil in the world and this father being a conduit that brings the evil in. And that's what they mean when they say, well, you've always been the caretaker. Like this has always happened. There's always gonna be someone who snaps in this hotel. There's always gonna be something bad that happens here. It's always been you because it's the same spirit does that make sense now? Okay. I,
0: I, I, you're not too far astray from my thoughts. Oh. Uh, yeah. Do you so, want to share yours or do you want to
1: give the popular fan and saviors for no, the
0: Fuck all that. I'm not going to go down the road of like, you know, oh, it's a metaphor
1: for. I, I think it's a metaphor. I think there's a lot of child abuse in this.
0: Yeah. Um, there is. I, I'm saying I'm not going to go down the road of like the 237 stuff of talking about, you know, oh, it. This movie is about the encroachment of white people and Native Americans. Oh, I see. What, yeah. and stuff like that. I'm just going to talk about what I see in this movie. And what I see in this movie is, it's how a family is affected by addiction, insanity, and abuse. And mm-hmm. how that family is destroyed by that. I'd agree. Right? And I think Jack stands in for every white man and misogyny as a whole.
1: I think that he He, was physically. He's abusive. And sexually abusive to his child. He gaslights everyone constantly, right? Yes. To the
0: point where when she sends him to room 237 and he sees that ghost woman. Nothing was there, man. And he's just like, that's nothing. He hurt himself. Like, he twists everything to benefit where he wants things to go, right? He takes the job. To help really his career, take, yeah, to help himself, but also putting his family in a situation without really checking with them, right? There, yeah, they want to leave, he won't let them. Yep, he is the constant. They're kind of a team, and he's like Shelly right. and Danny Lloyd are like mother son, and they're always together doing shit, and he's always alone. Like he self isolates. Agreed. He just is kind of awful.
1: Yeah, like every well, never mind.
0: And I think I that's, think you know, kind of... King has alluded to this. I don't know if he's outright said it. He probably has. But by this point in his life, especially if you read his uh, one writing book, where he talks kind of about his... It's like his half of it's his biography, basically. Right. He talks... What about Stephen King, not Stephen King? Yeah, Robert, go ahead. Very in detail about the idea of being an alcoholic and realizing the toll that takes on your family and being afraid... Of the generational trauma that's going to cause by me having these failings and doing this shit to my kid, am I dooming my kid to be just like me? And I think that's ultimately what this movie's about. That
1: shines through. Was Stanley Kubrick a father? Yes, he was a father because his daughter was in the
0: that one scene. Okay. But I think Stanley Kubrick. I think that uh, because we talked about them being the same but very different in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. I think King thinks within his own family, and I think Kubrick is thinking universal yeah larger the thing. The, the universal like, father king is thinking he wrote a book okay. about like i'm fucking this up for myself and my family and kubrick saw that and latched onto that which is why he dropped a lot of stuff from the book but he kept the alcoholism and the abuse and he kind of leaned into it more so than in the book not somewhere but definitely it's a key element of the like that's definitely you can tell that's something that he liked in the book because it plays a feature role in the movie and I think because of that where King is thinking small scale like he's very King's very warm and he's like hey I'm putting it on paper that I'm a fuck up. I don't want to do this I don't want to be this. I'm going to ruin this for my family and I'm destroying my family and I don't know how to stop doing it. Kubrick took it and made it large and cold the whole thing about like hey there is such a thing as generational trauma hey the thing that the things we're doing now are going to come back and haunt us right i think i wrote a note about the ghosts of the past will never be done with us and they'll absorb and overwhelm us if we allow them to when was that said no that's just my thoughts about the movie oh it, look at you
1: being all philosophical like well
0: i mean it really is. Like, that, I think that's why when you watch Room 237, everyone has this weird interpretation of like, hey, it's, you know, white men killing off the Indians, or hey, it's about Nazis. Or, I think it's more about... It's about generational trauma. Yeah, that the worst... The worst... Hurting...
1: Yes, I agree.
0: The, the quote, lesser. The enemy is within. Yeah.
1: There's no outside forces that are attacking them. There's nothing except for... Like, they are
0: they are their own worst enemy. And I think that's why the movie is a weird parallel success from the book. Because the book's very definitive about what it's talking about. I think the movie is enough of a blank s- slate that you can insert your interests into oppressor oppressee. Okay. See, like, I read it as, it was like, misogyny. But other people read it as a whole Native American allegory. Right. I read it as the, the abuse that... Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, it's the things that you are keyed into, you automatically fill that mm-hmm. because there's enough gaps in the movie, I think intentionally so, that you're allowed to insert I agree. your interest. And I think that's what makes this movie so interesting to people.
1: Where do, So where do we go from here? There's so much to talk
0: about. <laughs> well... I just want to point out a couple things. Because well, we talk about... Before we get off theme and start talking about the book and the movie and Kubrick being a, a psychopath. The color red is used in almost every single shot in the movie. Yeah. I think that's important.
1: I think that the movie hinges on those red elevator doors. Okay. I don't think that... I think that... I don't know if it's like a Kubrick thing or, or, or I don't know how this fits into my own theme but, or theory. I think that those doors are kind of like a showing of like, hey, this isn't happening. This isn't real. This is... You know what I mean? This is in somebody's head. Like, yeah. these are the door... Like, the, you know, the elevators are all the way
0: up. Like, the elevator is like, here's something that's about to fuck you up. Well, we, when we were talking about the plot, let's or the, the themes, let's talk for a second about what is actually happening in the movie. Okay. So I think what is happening in the movie, and it kind of is bore out a little bit more in uh, the movie, Dr. Sleep, is... Are we doing that next week? We are. Okay. The concept of most people don't have The Shining, so they don't even know those ghosts are in the hotel. They can't see them. Right. Right? Some people have The Shining, and they're cognizant of it, but they're not as strong. Like, Dick Halloran sees them, but he refers to the member as, like, they're like pictures, pictures like, they're oh. not real. Right. I just see them, and I'm like, oh, there they are. They can't hurt me. But Danny is so fucking strong, right? His power, like, yeah. I think... Dick Halloran's like a flashlight in the dark and Danny's like a fucking floodlight. Yeah. And so basically it's, it not only is it drawing all of these ghosts to him, it's allowing them because he's so young and not in control of his awesome powers, they're, they're able to reach out through him and that's how they get to Jack, right? Now what do they want with Jack though? Because he is the weak link in the family. I They're see. not going to drive the wedge between Mother and son. Danny and Wendy, right? Yeah, the weak link. Clearly, the alcoholic who's struggling with mental illness yep. is the weak link. And he's the easy he's, he's alone all the time. He chooses to be by himself. He's the likely... The, and also, he's the patriarch of the family and the one who's going to make the decisions. And the <laughs> brawn. And ultimately, the most dangerous person to possess, right? Fuck
1: that. But yeah, I see what you're saying.
0: And that kind of goes off before we get off this point. I just want to talk about the color yellow. Because if red is like yeah, there's a blood red and, a and like death and warning, gold represents to me, it's the color of possession in this movie. The gold room is the bar room. Right. Where Jack says, like, I'd sell my goddamn soul for And the bourbon of the is bright yellow. Right. And then... I was
1: I was waiting for her to find him in there and he was drinking his own pee or something. <laughs>
0: So It was very bright. It's yellow. That, mm-hmm. It's this covetous thing of like, the hotel gets him more and more, offering him more. And then kind of the last scene of the movie where Jack is still kind of Jack is when he goes in the gold room and there's the big party and the hotel's kind of taking him over. Yes. And Grady spills a yellow liquor on him. Apricot juice. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, uh, what is it? Isn't it uh, say apricot? No, 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 no. Uh, I would avocado. it's a yellow liqueur. Oh, another egg. It's apricot. It's, it's yellow. Ew, gross. And it has the consistency of like a pudding that you gross. drink it. Yeah, or like an eggnog. Gross. He spills it on Jack's red jacket. Before it was it's red. Taking him into the red bathroom. Mm hmm. It's all piles up. I see. Right? Yeah. It's red. Red is a warning. Red is blood. Like a, like a warning flag. You know, rage. And then yellow is the possession. And I think that's, that's, that's the two fair. color schemes. And. God damn, I just. Take this movie aside. I could just look at the interiors and the designs. Oh, it's of this beautiful. Movie. It's fucking incredible. And the fact that none of it was real. That's crazy. Blows my mind. Crazy. Okay. Yeah, and then the, back to the whole misogyny thing. It literally is Wendy who holds everything together. Like, Jack takes the job as the caretaker. She does all the fucking I was going to say, he doesn't do shit. Like, he just lays in bed and. Correct. Writes in quotes because he's just writing a fucking. psychotic novel that she does all the work. She, you know, she cleans, From the boilers to the, yeah. Everything. Everything. And he just... Contacting, you know, the park rangers to make sure that, hey, the phones are down. Like, it's not her job. Yet, she's doing it all for him. And even though he's going to get all the credit. And
1: he keeps telling her that, like, she doesn't understand his contract and how he has to be there. Yeah,
0: because he's gaslighting her because it's movies about misogyny. In my mind... Agree. Come at me, internet. Come at me. I will defend my opinion. Okay, let me tell you a little bit about some of the key differences between the book and the. Yes, I think this is important to me. Okay. It's very, very clear in the book that the hotel is haunted. Okay. They make no bones, they do not hint about it. It is very fucking clear. There are ghosts in this hotel, there's not a maze. Like, I do yeah, the I didn't know topiary. that until the
1: end of room two thirty seven. Yeah, But there's a, no maze. Do you know what a
0: topiary is yeah, it's a type of plant. A garden with plants that are in pots. Yeah. For this sense it's uh plants that have been shaped to look like animals. Yeah. That's yeah. Right so like elephants and whatnot. They come alive in the book. Rather, okay. And that was a thing when they first started doing it, Cooper because like that's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> For 1980, so they switched it to a maze, yeah, yeah. which kind of also is more Kubrickian.
1: In the miniseries remake, do they go back to do they stick with the maze theory or do
0: they go back I think it's to the shapes? A topiary, okay. If I remember correctly, it's it's been a hot minute. King really loves that version It is not right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like we said, Jack is a playwright in the book versus writing a novel in the movie. The ghosts in the book leave him a scrapbook. And the scrapbook is like the history of the hotel and it's got all the stuff in it and it draws him further and further into it. Okay. Like they're entangling him and wrapping him up. Is that does he 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 keep seeing spend all this time with the books, away from the family, with the ghosts? Okay. And it's a slow like them. Self isolation over as he isolates and becomes crazier. Things that aren't in the book. (laughs) The twins. Two oh, really? Girls, not in the book. Are they like mentioned that they, they nope. had been killed? Mm-mm. So what was the story Kubrick. of the
1: previous owner? Or the previous character? I think
0: they just mentioned like, he like went crazy and killed his kid or something like that. But the twins is Kubrick. The bleeding elevators is Kubrick. The all work and no play makes Jack a doll boy is Kubrick. That's the pretty famous. here's Johnny line is not in the book. That was improvised by, by Jack, uh, Nicholson? Jack Nicholson. And in the book, it's actually a croquet mallet, not an axe. That he attacks his family with.
1: Damn. That's a lot more...
0: The endings are different. We talked about how they're very, very, very different. In the
1: movie, he chases Danny out into the maze, gets lost, freezes to death. Yeah. Book, what
0: happens? So Halloran shows up, does not die. Okay. It's very important. Halloran does not die. Now, what happens with him is the hotel has become more powerful, and it's trying to take over Dick Halloran, too. Because he okay. also has The Shining. Jack, so does the father Jack have to... is taken over by the management of the hotel, which is basically a collection of ghosts in his head that have possessed him. He corners Danny. Calls the managers? He corners Danny with a croquet mallet. And Danny's like, you're not my dad. And there's a moment where Jack takes his body back over. And he's like, you gotta run. And then he struggles with himself, and then he basically beats the shit out of his face with the cocaine mallet, totally deforming himself to, to he doesn't look like Jack anymore. Also, well, he's definitely and like then his he's father. no longer Jack. And then what was it Wendy? Someone sets the boilers on overheat, and then as they're escaping, Jack runs down to save the hotel, and it explodes, <laughs> and it burns him and the hotel up. In a massive explosion. Okay. Um, That is the ending of the book. Damn. So, like I said, King's End's in like this fiery, warm explosion.
1: Not exactly a happy ending, but at least there's closure type ending. And Kubrick's End's in cold.
0: And that's basically their personalities in a nutshell. It
1: ends that you know he's frozen, but you don't know, do they make it? Did Danny and Wendy make it to the, the 12 miles off the mountain? Uh, Did... Like,
0: you don't have any of that. There was a scene that he actually shot that took place with them in the hospital afterwards. Oh. And they showed it at the like the first screening, the first public screening. And then after seeing it with an audience, Kubrick personally cut the scene out. Himself. What was it? It was just, you know, them... Making it to the police. I want to say it was like they were in a, the hospital... After having it off the mountain and the police were asking him questions and she was kind of just being like, you know, oh, like well, my husband went crazy. And Kubrick just axed it and then decided to just end on the the picture and okay. the mystery. Because I think he felt that would have more of a punch. It did. And people would leave and be like, what the fuck your last, is that Yeah, about? Your
1: last thought is of this crazy, you know, man who's ever taken the, who he thought was the protagonist rather than, oh, okay, everybody's good. Everything's fine at the end.
0: Yeah. Do you want me to throw some trivia? Yes.
1: We're running long
0: today, man. I this know. movie is forever. Okay. I, know. I knew when we sat down to do The Shining, this was not going to be a short Well, so <laughs> give me some
1: trivia uh, I aside from I,
0: the i throw some stuff out of you. Okay. Man. I shortened down the list of like, because there's, you could, we could do it an hour and a half. Oh, just for trivia, sure. but There's a whole movie about it. Yeah. Well, that's just themes. And <laughs> <laughs> we be like plot elements. So this movie was mostly shot in sequential order. And to do that, all of the sets had to be left standing. And that's why all of Elstree Studios was taken up by this movie. Oh, we talked they, about the front half, yeah. Yeah, they didn't... Took over the whole studio. You know, instead of doing the thing movies normally do where they go, all right, we're going to shoot everything in the gold room, and then we'll come back, and then we'll shoot everything in the... They had to keep it up to do they, it later. Yeah, they would. They shot in the order that the scene took place.
1: Is there a, a reason for that as far as a director? Or um,
0: I'm going to say it was probably easier on Danny and some of the cast... Because Kids. it's hard to go, okay, this scene, you're an 11. Oh, yeah. And then the scene after lunch, you're at a 2. So I think it helped with that. But speaking of Danny... Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> you mentioned that he never really acted again. So
0: Kubrick hid the fact that it was a horror film from him.
1: But it was also the girls, too. Like, none of the children yeah, knew that they were. but especially Danny. So yeah. he
0: even went so far as some of the scenes, like, when Wendy's like, screaming about, like, him abusing Danny or whatever, and Mm -hmm. she carries him out of the room, that's actually a dummy. Yeah, I could tell. not want him in the scene. It's a tale of two cities with Kubrick, because with some people, he's, like, exceedingly warm, like... And careful, and... And then with the other actors, he was just a fucking monster. Like the women? Yeah, or literally every adult. Yeah. He basically was like, you're an adult, fuck you, like, be an adult. He had Shelley Duvall and Scatman Crothers in tears. What's that? Nice. What a great, a great yeah, guy. He made them cry. But just do, it again, do it again. 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 However, when we go back to Danny, right? Mm-hmm. Between takes, he would pass ball with him. He sent him Christmas cards for years after that. Oh, that's not gonna, that's nice. He called him when he graduated to congratulate him on graduating high school. Nice. I mean, he kept in contact with his kid. Didn't have to. for the rest of his life. And that is something he did not do with a lot of people. Or, well... He was not a warm guy. He was
1: not a well-loved director the way that some are.
0: Yeah. I
1: guess it seemed to be said for a lot of those greats,
0: though. And we talk about Kubrick's perfectionism. So let's talk about that for a second. Mm -hmm. Why Shelley Duvall and Scatman Crothers would cry on set. Why Nicholson would leave set and just collapse... Because of shit like I'm about to tell you. Alright, here we go. Do you remember the scene where Danny's playing with the toys and the tennis ball rolls in? Yes. And that's when he sees room 237? Yep. They did that shot, I believe, 50 times.
1: Of just the ball rolling. Yeah. And standing up and going,
0: It's not right. Do it again. It's not right. Do it again. It's not right. Do it again. Mm. Uh, The scene where she's backing up on the stairs, swinging the bat. Yep. And Jack Nicholson's being, I think, the best Jack Nicholson in the entire movie. That's my favorite Jack Nicholson scene. Yeah, where he's. Witty. Yeah. <laughs> According to Guinness, uh, the Guinness Book of World Records, they did that scene. 127
1: times. Oh my gosh! And that level of emotion. Yeah.
0: However. Wow! Wow! Um, people on the set said it was actually more like 45, 50.
1: It, no, it doesn't matter. Still, uh,
0: Shelley Duvall talked about she would have to keep teardrops. Because she would have to be Ugh. so hysterical that she would actually just get so dehydrated she couldn't cry anymore. <laughs> I believe it. And she'd have to like be pouring water in her eyes. Do you believe? It? Yeah. Oh, wouldn't.
1: Okay. As an actor, you get yourself in that headspace, and then to have to stay there for all day yep.
0: long. His perfectionism didn't stop with the shooting. So Saul Bass who's a famous um, artist who made like a lot of posters for movies and he also did a lot of opening title sequences especially for, like Hitchcock.
1: Okay. So uh, uh, he did this himself, yeah.
0: 300 posters for this movie before he landed on one he liked.
1: A yellow piece of paper with the words the shining he on it. He just kept doing them and
0: he was like, "Nah."
1: <laughs> That's very Prince, isn't it?
0: Nah. Yeah. I mean, what do you expect from a guy who he kept every single hate mail and fan letter he ever got and he had them filed in a large filing cabinet by country of origin and then within the country of origin it would be the state or province and then the city. Why? And he kept all of them.
1: That's just O C D tendencies, isn't it? Like that that's all that is. They it's would just talk a about need to organize your ideas that both in and out of your head.
0: Yeah. Kubrick is notoriously cold, but very smart. They like always are. The way his brain works is...
1: Yep. The smarter you are, that's the thing that you just have to kind of roll with. The smarter yeah. someone is, the more, quote, quirks they're going to have.
0: He never forgot anything. Arlie Army told a story about... Who? Arlie Army? Arlie? Ar- Arlie Ermey, oh. the, the drill sergeant on Full Metal Jacket. Okay. Told a story about they were scouting for the location of... Um, like the army barracks and stuff for full metal jacket and kubrick was driving the car and he was pointing up on a hill and they were like hey 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 and he just drove into a ditch and he did not stop talking as the car flipped over like, it just was happening up. and he was it didn't just... like flip over but like as it yeah. sank into the ditch he lost the got out and just kept talking like and then like you know the helicopters would come coming here and like it just he he just was one track mind you
1: know what that sounds like that's autism.
0: Eyes wide shut, he didn't want to leave home. Like he didn't want to not sleep in his own bed. So like How old was this... he by then? I mean, he moved to England after uh, oh I asked him two three quick. or four movies in. So he's probably in his thirties. And he just never left home. He shot a Vietnam movie in England. He had them fly in palm trees and plant them. Because he didn't feel like going right? anywhere. He just was like I want to go home at night and sleep on my own bed. Yep, yeah, that's autism. Um, and I'm doing that, and I can do that, so that's what we're doing. For Eyes Wide Shut, which takes place in his last movie, it takes place in New York, he sent photographers to take pictures of like every single door and of every single angle of like streets in New York City, and then he just recreated them. Wow! Like he Not much power would put all of the photos together to make to make it like a giant collage. And then he was like, "All right, we'll just build this." <laughs> I'm not
1: going anywhere here. And you get to use my name—that's
0: <sighs> a fucking thing. So Stephen King and this movie doesn't understand why people think this movie is scary. He thinks it's really fucking dumb. <laughs> well, thank you, Stephen. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> uh, he he said that he believes it's all style and no substance. He compared it to a beautiful car with no engine. And he felt that there is no descent into madness for Jack. He's like, basically, my book is a guy descending into madness, being tormented by ghosts. Jack Nicholson shows up and he's fucking crazy from the the, from the jump? Like, when he first shows up, he's like... Rah, 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 like, just out of his fucking mind. And Stephen King hated that. Mm-hmm. He, I can see that. He also said, upon seeing the film, he said, quote, I think he, me and Kubrick, set out and make a film... That hurts people. Because of how, why? Like the way that it's shot? or He he wanted to make a movie that was just emotionally wounding is what he felt. Like there's no he felt there wasn't any catharsis. Yeah I mean we touched on that as far as the ending and that there's not a lot of closure in this one. Yep and he said that the movie, the movie's version of Wendy is one of the most misogynistic characters ever committed to film. And that she's only there to scream and be stupid.
1: Yeah. I, I, yes, I agree with that. Right? She's a very flat character. Jack.
0: King hated the fuck out of this movie and still does. Good to know. Um, Yeah, they're making hold a grudge. The maze that you talked about was built on an airfield by weaving branches into chicken wire that was mounted on empty plywood boxes. (sighs) Imagine how long that took,
1: just for a few shots. If
0: you think that's fucking crazy... Listen to, to the sentence that's about to leave my mouth. Here we go. The snow at the film's climax was 900 tons of salt and crushed styrofoam, rather than real snow. They didn't have real snow. God.
1: Wow. Wow. Like that's just a dick move.
0: Yeah. Let's arc off this real fast.
1: Action. Yes, from the get go. It it moves. Mm-hmm. There's no pacing issues with that. R.
0: Revolutionary? I think it's revolutionary. I think so. I mean, well,
1: I mean, everybody takes away something different, so the, it's original to each person.
0: The gaps, the the blankness enough to put your own spin on it. I think is revolutionary and important. K
1: killing. Yep. I mean, we have that. If nothing else, you have the big, uh, the hallway of blood right away, and then you know the girls being killed and so on and so is forth. spectacular. Yeah, and one of oh, the let, best
0: let shot let things scream. in the movie. Uh, I also scare the shit out of
1: you. <laughs> oratory, a thousand of them. I'll work in a play makes jacket, a boy, so on and so forth.
0: Here's Johnny.
1: Here's Johnny. Fantasy and fornication. There's no real fornication.
0: That'd be weird. Uh, yeah, there is. Oh, God, yeah, duh. There is a the, full frontal ghost, the ghost that comes out of the water. Duh. And then turns into a full frontal old, old woman ghost. Saggy ghost. Yeah,
1: that's true. And this is a fantasy. So, yeah, it does fit the archive formula. No wonder it was a success. <laughs> so, next week we're watching... The sequel to this movie? Dr. We're watch Sleep? Dr.
0: Sleep next week. Okay. Yep, yep. Let me ask you two quick questions before we go. All right. One. Did you like this movie?
1: Yes. This was a good movie. For sure. I can see why it was an important movie, why it was as popular as it was. There are a lot of layers to it. Yes, I like this movie.
0: Uh two, would you Watch it again with family? I mean, we watched it with your son.
1: I don't think I would watch it with the older generation. I think because just in the things that we liked about it, like, oh, there's this blank slate, we can apply our own knowledge to it, What you know, bring what we want to it, are the exact same reasons that the older generation would not like this movie. They like to be told exactly what's happening, what's going on, recap. <laughs> You know what I mean? They, I need, don't a, want to thank they me. need a great chorus that gives them the expos the exposition like that's it's needed. Cindy, that's just right.
0: Uh, and lastly, to you, listeners. So this episode is dropping the week of Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Thanksgiving is usually a very hard time of year. It's going to be especially hard for a lot of people during a pandemic, which I hope to God you're actually following pandemic rules. Yeah. Please don't be a monster. That being said, we appreciate you. We love you. If at any point during the long weekend you need to, like, get a hold of us on Facebook for a depression issue or you just want to talk about a movie or you just need to get away from your family for a minute. Hit us up. That's what we got Facebook for. And okay. If you know us personally, you can text us. Yeah. But we love you. Don't be say sad. Happy Thanksgiving. But We're
1: thankful for you all. And this uh, crazy sucks. little podcast. But uh, I bet Shelley Duvall is not thankful for this movie.
0: I'm, sh- I'm thankful for Shelley Duvall we all are yeah in that case all right until then cindy i love you and listeners i i love all of you
1: (laughs) that's josh
0: yeah stone cold sober by the way
1: yeah lovely (laughs) all right well until then i'm josh and i'm cindy and i'm still his girlfriend